0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast, I'm Dennis Strank. There are many interesting things happening in and around the field of pathology, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who are doing those things. My guests today are two of those people, Dr. Judy Melanick and T.J. Mitchell. You may have heard of them. They're the authors of the New York Times bestseller, Working Stiff, which chronicles Dr. Melanick's first two years as a forensic pathologist in New York City. Their new book, First Cut, is a mystery novel about a young forensic pathologist in San Francisco. Today on the show, we'll talk a little bit about Working Stiff, and when and why they decided it was time for another book, and why it would be fiction this time. We'll talk about some of the characters in First Cut, and how they were inspired by real life people. And we'll talk about why accuracy was so important, not only in the forensic pathology, but in other aspects of the book as well. I'm so honored and grateful that they took the time to speak with me. Now, here are Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. I wanted to start with speaking a little bit about your first book, Working Stiff. So, Working Stiff was published in 2015, uh, went on to become a New York Times bestseller. Now, coming off the success of Working Stiff, at what point did you decide it was time for another book?
1: I thought. It would be a good idea to keep myself busy and write something while TJ was working on the revisions of Working Stiff. So while he was working with the editor on Working Stiff, I had nothing to do. And I was going to work every day at the San Francisco Medical Examiner's office uh, and had a lot of dead time during my lunch hour and between when I got off of work and when I had to pick up my son at Chorus so I came up with the idea of... Well,
2: it's all dead time at the
1: medical Right, center, that's that's true. Thank you. No
2: <laughs> pun
0: um, intended.
1: <laughs> this is after hours. But uh, because I had this extra time and TJ was doing most of the creative work on Working Stiff at the time, I thought, wouldn't it be great to fictionalize some of my experiences, especially since I was a big fan of detective fiction such as Patricia Cornwell's Kay Scarpetta series and Kathy Reich's sure. series? So I figured, well, I could do that, too. I've got some good stories. So I started off by coming up with an idea that was somewhat inspired by cases I had seen at the San Francisco M.E.'s office. I think I wrote about, what was it, 100 pages? Mm -hmm. And then I handed it off to T.J. It had a beginning, it had um, some major characterizations, and it had the end, which was crucial. And then then when T.J. had uh, handed off Working Stiff to the editors... I gave it to him and said, "Here, can you do something with this?"
2: And we didn't. We didn't want to write a second nonfiction book. It's it's unusual for writers to write both nonfiction and fiction. It's not unheard of by any means. Yes. But it's uh, it's not it's not typical. We didn't want to write, you know, Working Stiff Two: The Revenge, partly because the arc of Working Stiff, uh, our first book, is. Dr. Melnick, as a young forensic pathologist learning how to do death investigation, which is something that you only learn on the job—you don't learn it in the hospital in residency—and without that arc, we didn't really want to want to write a, a follow-up book about uh, about her career after that. But we figured that fictionalizing some of the things that she was seeing might be a lot of fun, and and in fact, that's that's what we turned to do.
0: Okay, so you started working on this even before Working Stiff was published. Is that? Am I That's hearing right.
2: that right? Well, we we are we were we were published both times by we're we're fortunate to be uh, very traditional down the line big five publishing houses. Working stiff is uh, Scribner, which is Simon and Schuster, and mm-hmm. first cut is Hanover Square, which is uh, Harper Collins. And when you do that, that the the time between you, the writer, being done with your manuscript, and the professionals at the publishing house being done with with the book can be half a year or more and they they did a a fantastic job with these books and we're very very happy with the way they turned out but there is a rather there's a pretty long lag time between it being out of your hands and actually being out on
0: bookshelves sure sure I, I imagine that was pretty frustrating waiting that kind of lag time wasn't it no,
2: not really, because we had started on something else. The, the thing that's really frustrating, and other writers will tell you this, is turning in the draft to your editor and then waiting for your editor to get back to you with his or her notes and not constantly hitting refresh on your email a million times a day like a crazy person. Because you have <laughs> sure. to give your editor time to do a good job. You don't want to rush your editor. And, and the editor, uh, especially for for First Cut, John Glynn is is a genius, and we love him, and we like to give him as much time as he needs to work on the book. But that is the time when you're really on pins and needles. Because you can't open, you've just been, you've immersed yourself in this manuscript, and you've worked on it every day, and then you send it off and you can't touch it. Because what you've just sent to him, he's working on, you can't have two different versions. So you can't touch it, you can't look at it until he gets back to you. That can be a frustrating time.
1: So during that time, I usually throw new ideas at TJ, and that keeps him busy and keeps him away from the refresh button.
0: Yes. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay. Um, You you mentioned, Dr. Melanick, that you had about 100 pages to start with. Did you have Dr. Teska at that time? I mean, when when, when did your main character, how did she develop?
1: I did have that character. I think she had a different name initially, but... uh, I I don't remember what her original name was because she's Jessie for us now. But uh, yes, I did have that character. I wanted her to be a woman, a forensic pathologist who had just finished her training. So in some ways, First Cut is a little bit like a follow-up to Working Stiff, but a fictionalized one because at the end of Working Stiff, I finished my fellowship training, and that's exactly at the time that we're picking up in Dr. Teska's life. Right. So I, I was at least trying to get her young. Um, and focus on the portion of uh, a forensic pathologist's career when she is still learning, and that really sharp learning curve that happens right when you get out of fellowship and you have to be independent for the first time. You have to actually apply everything that you've learned.
2: Jesse Teska is not based on Judy. She, there's there's Inspired things about her. By. There's th- there's <laughs> things about her that are part of Judy's personality. There's things about her that are part of my personality. In some ways, she's like our naughty fifth daughter, and uh, there there are also things that were very important to the two of us to introduce in this character. One thing is her very shallow immigrant roots, because that's something that both Judy and I share. Judy is an immigrant to the United States, and my grandparents were uh, immigrants, and so we really wanted to make sure that the immigrant experience was an important part of. Jesse, as a character, that's also why she's a Polish speaker. Is that is a heritage that that Judy and I share? I'm a Polish American. Um, she is a Polish Jew, and our grandparents all spoke Polish. So we don't, but uh, but Jesse. Mm-hmm.
0: That sounds very familiar. I'm actually Polish American myself, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I don't speak the language. I know maybe three or four Polish words. Yeah, although actually. I, there are a few a handful of listeners from Poland uh, that listen to the show. And I wonder, uh, so if you're out there and you're in Poland, uh, mm-hmm. let me know if the if the Polish in the book is accurate. Yes, please do. Yes. Ye. Yeah. <laughs>
1: we, we had a lot of fun with it, especially since Jesse primarily curses in Polish and my grandmother would never abide by per- cursing. She would turn oh, bright no. red.
0: No, <laughs> yeah, that mine, would not either. be something she
1: would do.
2: Yeah. yeah. No. But the, the way it's just because your, your listeners are, may not may not be familiar with, with what we're talking about here, it might may sound like gibberish. Jesse and her brother, Tommy, grew up in a house where their mother is a Polish immigrant and their father is a native born American who does not speak Polish. He's abusive. It's a broken home and an unhappy childhood. And so mom speaking to them in Polish turned out to be sort of a secret language, which was something that a way that the three of them could connect and could even communicate in secret. So Jesse and Tommy still speak in Polish sometimes, and uh, sure. also Jesse, you know, swears in Polish. Or uh, sometimes when we have one of these mother tongues, you know, they come lashing out of you when you're uh, in a vulnerable state.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I found that those those little Polish phrases here and there. Um, I had to look them up, of course, but they were that. that was a nice touch. It was it was very uh, creative. Thank you. So. Queer, I <laughs> See, I know that. I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, there you go. was <laughs> right. one, one, one of the few Polish phrases I know. Um, the first scene investigation in the book, I, I saw in a different interview that you did, and you, you mentioned that that was based, sort of, based on an actual case. So I'm wondering, Dr. Mellon, I know for Working Stiff you kept a journal of your time in New York and that was kind of the basis of working stiff, at least in the beginning. Did you do the same thing or are you still doing the same thing uh, now? And did that was that sort of the beginning of First Cut?
1: I don't keep a journal anymore in terms of my day-to-day activities and what I learned from each case, but I do have a spreadsheet that I use to keep track of my cases. And in the process of writing First Cut, Uh, TJ and I actually put together a separate spreadsheet of imaginary autopsies. So, So the autopsies that are mentioned in the book so that we had a representation of all the different types of cases that a typical urban forensic pathologist would experience. We didn't want to be too heavy on the homicides or too heavy on the accidents or suicide. We wanted to really represent what a typical workload would be like so keeping both the spreadsheet of my actual cases as a point of comparison and then using the fictional spreadsheet to inform that you know to inform it was one thing that we did we we had some we had some interesting um ways of tracking things compared to i think most uh novelists another thing that we kept track of was the case numbers uh, we wanted to make sure that at the Right time of year, we were accurately representing what the case number would be for Ma- March or June or May. Um, so that was oh, another sure. thing we we yeah
2: I, I have a, a, out. a database for our for our novels for each of them called a dead bodies timeline, which you really have to you have to keep straight, especially because one of the most important things to us in writing these books is to realistically represent what Dr. Melnick and other forensic pathologists do. And you don't do the death investigation all on in one day. Sometimes you don't even do the autopsy all on one day. And, and that that right. case which you referred to, which uh, sets things in motion, uh, it's not a spoiler to to describe what Judy actually went through. Do you want to do you want to say?
1: Sure. I, in the San Francisco office, I was routinely called out to homicides, uh, primarily any suspicious case where the death investigators needed the input of forensic pathologist or the police department wanted our input. We'd get called out. doesn't matter where in the city. It doesn't matter what time of day. It could be 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, we'd be called out to the scene. And this is one where I went to a cafe that was on uh, a corner in the tenderloin, similar to the case portrayed in the book. And a young man had uh, jacked a laptop off a customer at the cafe the customer was not going to have any of it pulled out a gun and shot the young man as the young man was running away with the laptop and even chased him into the next uh restaurant which was a, a gelateria and at that point he after after the man collapsed uh the victim of the of the uh, robbery <laughs> takes the laptop and walks out of the cafe and when i went out to that scene it's exactly pretty much plays out almost exactly like it does in First Cut. I was asked about the gunshot wounds and the direction of fire. But at the end of it, all I could think of was what was on that laptop that was so important that you'd kill somebody over.
2: And right there you have right. the scene for a novel.
1: But I never found out. I mean, the, the difference between right, fiction yeah. and nonfiction, and this is the thing that frustrated TJ when we were writing Working Step, is he was always asking me, well, what happened? What's the follow-up? Did they arrest him? Uh, what did you find out? And most of the time, I was like, I don't know.
2: I- <laughs> and I said, what do you mean you don't know? I mean, just, like, what, what happened? She says, I don't know. I went to the DA. and I said, well, why don't you go ask the DA? She says, I don't go skulking around the DA's office asking them about old cases. I have new cases and they do too. So now when we're writing our fiction, we can actually follow these cases all the way through to their conclusion.
1: And make them up. Yeah, it's very satisfying. <laughs> it's mu- It's much more right. satisfying than real life in some ways. Uh, but I mean, all of our, you know, my experience as a forensic pathologist, I, I would say that, you know, in the thousands of cases I've done to date, it's, I think it's almost 3,000 3, now, yeah. um, oh, only about 10% or about 300 are homicides. Of those, the majority of them, either the perpetrator does not get caught, or if they do get caught, they uh, plead out, so they don't necessarily go to trial. I would say less than half of them. Uh, go to preliminary hearing or trial. And even if it does go to trial, the DAs don't necessarily tell me what the outcome is. So getting a complete picture of the whole case is very rare for a typical mm. workload.
2: And it's fun yeah. from a storytelling perspective to have all these dead bodies because you get to decide which ones are integral to the plot, which ones are red herrings, and which ones are totally irrelevant, just everyday work that that Dr. Mal- Dr. Teska does. And right. that's that's it's a lot of fun to to play around with that.
1: So it makes it challenging for the reader too. I mean, I, I we try not to make it confusing. We want to make sure we focus on the ones that are important.
2: Right, but as a reader, you never know which one of these autopsies might be something important,
1: or will
0: it give you. That's a clue. Abo- absolutely yeah. true. I, I did feel that way as I was reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the one of the points I wanted to make. Working stiff throughout it, it shows sort of the methods of forensic pathology, kind of the principles of it. And then you took with first cut and you applied all of that to one, well, one complete story with some side stories as well. And I can see how that would be fun to sort of fill in the blanks that you don't normally get in, you know, real life cases. So that's I, exactly in way, what we're aiming for. Right. Right. So almost first cut is almost a, almost a sequel in a way.
2: That's, well, what that's we were, yeah, that's exactly what yeah. we were, what we were shooting for. Yeah.
1: We, we wanted right. a sequel without having to rehash the case-based structure of Working Stiff.
2: Yeah, we wanted a new way to explore the material that w- we have.
1: But also ensure forensic accuracy. I mean, that's a yeah. really important part of what we were aiming towards. And that, part of that comes from a frustration, I have to admit, of watching uh, all those television shows, the CSIs and the NCIS. Your, your, what's your mom's favorite? NCIS. Uh, all of those right. i just i can't watch them my TJ dj gets upset with me like if he has it on i end up screaming at the television or throwing things Judy at has, him Judy has a great
2: blog post <laughs> yeah. called if if you if you google 7 csi fails where she lists her her the, the her top 7 pet peeves for for forensic shows
1: and and yeah. they include things like turn on the lights because if you watch the shows you'll realize that um the the universally they're always doing the autopsies in the dark and pointing flashlights at things when an actual autopsy suite is very well lit. It's like a surgical suite. Um, You're not going to be able to see the evidence if you don't have a lot of light. So it kills the ambiance from a forensic standpoint for television shows, but that's the reality of what we do.
0: Sure. Um, Yeah, you don't often... uh, Well, I've noticed in shows like that that the use of uh, PPE is not exactly right up to standards and uh yeah
1: oh they're still eating in the autopsy suite like you know uh, aka quincy which you know osha would would shut down these labs in a in a minute
0: (laughs) (laughs) if anybody was
1: caught bringing coffee into the morgue.
0: right yeah absolutely and I, i don't imagine you're wearing uh heels in the uh autopsy suite very often either
1: i don't wear heels period it's not good for your feet it actually damages them over the long term but more importantly You might get called out to a crime scene or a death scene at any time. And I've I've gotten called out from anywhere from the marina where you have to walk on floating docks uh, to uh, parks where there's uh, muddy, uh, you know, hills that I have to climb to get to the dead bodies. So, no, I wear practical shoes.
0: (laughs) Okay, Uh, I did notice, though, in, in addition to I mean, I can understand why you want the the forensic science to be accurate in your book. That that makes perfect sense. But in reading the acknowledgments, you you went to some lengths to make sure other aspects of the book were accurate as well. Uh, There's a lot of different people you thank in there for different things, Um, police procedure and uh, the way lawyers work, and even we talked about the Polish, other things like that. Why was that important to do?
2: Thank you for picking up on that. That's that's an excellent question. It was important to do because. We wanted to stay so true to the forensics, and that includes all aspects of forensics. A forensic pathologist is part of a team. A death investigation is part of a team. And especially if it's criminal and and there are then lawyers involved, it becomes a, a larger and larger circle of professionals who each have their own roles and overlap, but they tend not to step on each other's toes as much as you might think from watching television. And we really wanted right. to make sure that we represented what each of those professionals do to the best of our ability.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I, I think you did a really good job of that. Now, the book does show a lot of the interplay between the medical examiner, the police, the legal system, but it does it shows that that's, it, it, there can be corruption and those different areas can be sort of territorial about what they do. Why, why did you want to, I mean, that's obviously accurate as well. Why did you want to include those things?
1: I wanted to include it. I mean, the idea behind the book was to write something that reflected, number one, the reality of the workplace in a busy urban office. And in a busy urban office, there are tensions between the police and the medical examiner. Um, Even in working stuff that comes out where Ah, uh, the police would rather have me certify the death as a suicide because then they don't have to investigate it, um, as opposed to a homicide. Correct. Like if I say something's a homicide, right. then all of a sudden now they've got a they've got a lot more work on their hands, and especially if the body's decomposed um, and nobody's realized that it was a homicide right away, they've lost their seventy two hour advantage and the leads that they could potentially have. So it's very frustrating for them. Because they get dinged or they get criticized for not closing cases. And if something's an impossible case, it's better if the medical examiner says it's undetermined or a suicide rather than a homicide. Uh, The DA is the same thing. They sometimes have excellent witnesses who have evidence of a crime and have testified to a particular event or thing that they saw. But if they go to the medical examiner and the medical examiner says, well, I can't substantiate what that witness is saying or the physical evidence is not consistent with that, Well, that puts the DA in a very difficult mind because the pressure is on them, especially in high-profile cases, to prosecute somebody, and they oftentimes see the medical examiner as part of their team, which ideally we're not supposed to be. We're supposed to be independent scientists who are not beholden to either a prosecution or a defense. We're supposed to speak to the facts of the case in an objective manner and, and speak basically for the dead body. Get, you know, pr- right. bring the evidence forward that the body can show, and not uh, be part of any particular side in a litigation.
2: And also, this book is genre fiction, and the genre is noir detective novel in the American tradition. And in that tradition, your detective starts out with a world that's already corrupted. She has her mystery to solve, and she very doggedly does solve that mystery, even at her own peril. And even if it doesn't help anybody, and then in the end you still have a world that's corrupted. She hasn't fixed anything. So we right. um, we, we sought out those elements of the of the life that a, a medical examiner lives, and turned up the volume a little bit. I guess I mean they, we're we're not making <laughs> making anything up especially, but we're we're just amping it up a little. Bit.
1: And in all uh, due respect to the the character who's unnamed in, in, I mean, the the character of the city of San Francisco in the book, Uh, San Francisco has a history of noir, a literary history that uh, spans more than a century, really, about a century, right? Um, So it, it, it was important for us to reflect that as well.
2: And most investigations that Judy does that involves homicide detectives. The homicide detectives are very effective. They're very smart people, and they get the job done. That's not
0: very interesting for a detective <laughs> True, novel, right? Right. The noir novels and, and movies, that that sort of genre, there's often like a voiceover narration. I wonder, as you were writing, did you picture that or kind of hear that in your head? No, we didn't at the, all the because, we,
2: no, because we always had the voice. We always had Jesse's voice. This book is written in the first person. And Jesse, okay. it was our—it was actually our editor who pointed out that Jesse is an extremely reliable narrator. There is a, a trend in in mystery fiction nowadays to have an unreliable narrator, where you, as the reader, are never quite sure if you're being given the real story. And those are really exciting, and they're a lot of fun. This book is is, is mm-hmm. not like that. Jesse is very very reliable. You can put yourself in her hands, and it's in the first person. So, and and it's written in. Um, a colloquial style it's it's written in a very verbal style so I almost feel as though as though the that that noir voiceover is baked into the narrative
0: okay noir also uses um, flashbacks which you employ as well and I like how you kind of give a little bit a little bit of information about the characters at a time there's a little flashback or a little kind of a little bit about a about their backstory it's just kind of a little bite here and there and that for me, anyways, it helped to uh, really hold my interest.
2: Oh, good! I'm glad to hear that because that that takes work on your part, on the part of the reader, and uh, we uh, we honor that. You know, that's uh, we have to give enough that you are interested, but not so much that you decide that you want to give up on these people that they're they're too much
0: trouble. It's
2: a it's a it's a responsibility. Our getting into your head and taking it over, and and we take that seriously.
0: Thanks. I think you did a good job of it. I, I wonder, though, some of the characters, I know, you, like we talked about, Jesse is sort of based on a little bit of, of both of you. Were some of the other characters based on real real people?
1: Uh, there were definitely people who, inspired, like I said, inspired by, um, in the sense that uh, Dr. Howe, who's the chief forensic pathologist at Uh, the office of the chief medical examiner in our fictional San Francisco office, is a little bit based on Dr. Hirsch, a little bit based Mm -hmm. on Dr. Boyd Stevens, who was the former chief medical examiner um, who I worked under for a period of time when I first arrived. Uh, Michael Stone, the uh, character of the deputy chief, he actually borrows uh, the name of one of my residency program directors when I was doing surgery. But his character is much more based on uh, oh. an amalgam of different characters I've worked with over the years. Yeah, so none, not, none not of these indi- characters yeah. are,
2: are, are picked up from individual people, but there are aspects of them from from different people that Judy has worked with or, or even that I that I know.
1: Have yeah.
2: known. There's one character, Ted Nguyen, Te, you know, Sunshine Ted Nguyen. Yeah. Uh, his name yeah. is actually our dentist, Ted Nguyen, <laughs> here dentist. in San Francisco. I,
1: we asked his permission if we could use his name. <laughs> we just like, we
2: like the name a lot. Yeah. And, and, and he's uh, a big
1: fan. Yeah. So we figured we'd give him We started
2: of- out with that name in the in the early <laughs> manuscripts, figuring we'll change it at some point. And then yeah. we just, we didn't. And we loved it. and We wanted to keep it. And Dr. Nguyen, our Dr. Nguyen, the dentist, is absolutely nothing like Dr. Nguyen, the forensic pathologist. he's the nicest guy. Right? <laughs> he's very uh, friendly. But yeah, that's, that's a real name, anyhow. There are a couple of other real names in there. Uh Mrs. Gail Gamone, who taught Jesse in the first grade. She was my first grade teacher. That's, in fact, she her, came out to one name. of our
1: book events to, she still she's uh you know, lives in uh near Nahant. Is she live yeah. in Nahant or nearby? I don't know. Yeah, but she she lives in Massachusetts and came where up. Where I grew up. In, where, I,
2: I grew up near where Jesse comes from, Lynn, Massachusetts. And uh and also her um the the, the mysterious doctor who who left the job that Jesse took up is named after uh, my high school anatomy and physiology teacher. But we tried not to use real people's names too much.
0: Sure. I can understand that. Yeah. I really did. Ted was one of the characters that I I really liked and, uh, and Dr. Stone as well. He, I went back and forth with him. I liked him. Then I hated him. Uh, Then I liked him again. Then I felt sorry for him. He was very He's a complex um, character. He was a very yeah. intriguing character. Yeah.
2: I, I like I like Ted. I like Ted as a character too. Yes. And you'll absolutely. you'll be happy to hear, you know, that uh, we are almost done with the sequel to First Cut, which is called Crosscut. And Ted gets a good deal of airtime in Crosscut too. So if you if you enjoyed his yeah. shenanigans in First Cut, you'll you'll enjoy them in Crosscut.
1: If it doesn't get cut by the editors, we have to <laughs> we're still in the editorial phase right now. Yeah. But uh yeah, I mean one thing that I do want to mention is that we really made an effort to try to capture the um, ethnic heterogeneity of the city of San Francisco. There are characters who are uh, Latino, African-American, uh, Caucasian, um, Asian, of all different types of Asian. So it's something that we are intimately familiar with, having lived here now, how many years? 15 years? Mm-hmm. Um, that's our community. Those are the people that we live. Those are our neighbors. So it's it's hard not to write without respecting that tradition for the city, because it really captures the, the ethnic diversity here
0: and you and you researched those the different ethnicities too i i noticed as well you had different people that you thanked for
2: um yeah checking checking to keep us honest yes. yeah we, we uh, wanted
1: can... to make sure that we were capturing um yeah. different right. but
2: we were also largely capturing our own experience here in san francisco yeah. over 15
1: years and also the dialogue just listening to how people speak yeah. Since different people, you know, people with accents speak a little differently. You know, we were sure. listening to the audiobook the other day and we realized at the time that, oh my God. What gosh, a challenge.
0: <laughs> this poor actress, to, she, she to did a great Amanda, job.
2: Amanda Dolan? Amanda Dolan, yeah, yeah is, is the he? is
1: the audiobook actress. And yeah. she did a spectacular job capturing all the different accents we forced on her. Yeah. And the, and the Polish, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll she have, have great to check job. out the audiobook then. That I have the uh, I have the uh, audio book of uh, Working Stiff.
2: Yes, she she won. That's Tanya Eby won a, a an award for headphones. That. Award. headphones award. award. Yeah, won an award for for that. Yeah, for that portrayal of oh. our work.
1: Yeah, of Working Stiff. But I gotta say, I think I think Dolan deserves an yeah, award was, for uh, first cut with all the accents. That was spectacular.
2: Yeah, she deserves combat pay. If nothing <laughs> no. else. Oh
0: wow. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to check that out for sure. I did want to note the how's it going rounds. <laughs> Was that inspired by Hirsch Rowlands?
1: To some degree, because Dr. Hirsch, that's where that was where they're similar, because Dr. Hirsch used to go from body to body and we would present to him when I was in my fellowship. And I know this is actually a very common uh, way of connecting with the chief forensic pathologist in lots of different offices. So it's not just unique to Dr. Hirsch. I know a lot of other uh, professors do it. It gives them an ability to actively supervise the staff and find out what's going on with each case so that if they're is help needed, they can step in, or if there is a, a, a teaching point that they can contribute to teaching the students with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. It, it seems like that that's a great way to learn and to learn how to uh, kind of think about your uh, argument, I guess, or your diagnosis.
1: It's also a great uh, device from a literary standpoint, because then we can teach the audience without being expositional.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. That's a great point. So you mentioned uh, Crosscut is the next book, and, and you said you're already you're already working on it.
2: Yeah, we were is we that... were fortunate to get a two book deal to write detective novels, which means that as soon as we turned in first cut, we could we could start right on Crosscut. So we okay. yeah, Crosscut will be on bookshelves in January of 2021.
1: And we have ideas for a few more after that.
2: That's true. Yeah, we have no shortage of stories, which is yeah. one of the wonderful things about about uh, pursuing this. Right.
1: And there are a lot of expressions in English with the word cut. Yeah. <laughs> we, we actually went on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I think it was a Facebook or Twitter. I think both. And said expressions in English with the word cut go. And all of our friends gave us at least another half dozen titles.
0: That's funny. Yeah, I found myself trying to guess, uh, you know, what would be the next uh, next title after, after
1: that. Well, I just keep referring to them as next cut until we actually pick one.
0: Okay. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, this is something I noticed, and it's one of the, uh, Dr. Nguyen, one of the, well, it was directed at him, where, uh, Jesse one day, she she says, coffee is for closers. Ed. <laughs> yeah. That's a quote. Somebody is a Glengarry. Yes. Yeah. Some Glengarry, <laughs> Glengarry, right. Glenn yeah. Glen Ross. Who's, who's the fan? Oh, that both would of be us. both of us. Both yeah. of us. Don't yeah, take
1: all that true. credit. <laughs>
2: yeah. And Jesse is.
1: Yeah, but we we keep on joking with when whenever you know we meet someone and we talk about our book and we give them our card. We also joke from that we say, always be closing. Yeah, and we hand them our card. Right. Because that's, you know yeah. ultimately, or- anytime you have you have a book and you write a book, it's a it's a sales job. We never
2: we didn't appreciate this. We yeah, never written a book before. We true. wrote uh, working stiff, and and yeah, it is it is a sales job because you work very hard on it and you're proud of it and you want people to read it. And if they're going to read it, it has to be Uh under their eyeballs. If it's going to get under their eyeballs, they're going to have to buy it or, or procure it somehow. if you can be part of that process, you should be, if, if you are an author who believes in your work. And so we are very enthusiastic uh, salespeople for, for our, for our work. We're not, we're not shy about, about pushing it on people.
1: But it also has to do with the fact that I love the field of forensic pathology, and we have a serious shortage of forensic pathologists in the United States right now, actually nationwide yes. and even internationally. Um, for the past few years, I've had a Google alert for the words forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and I get uh, daily alerts that make me aware of the fact that in Zimbabwe right now, they only have three forensic pathologists and there's a backlog of cases. In Guam, they haven't been able to fulfill the position of chief forensic pathologist for over a year. Uh, This is seriously a problem. And if by Uh, writing books about the field, whether fiction or nonfiction, we can draw more people into it and make them aware of how exciting and fascinating a profession it is, then I feel like I've done my duty to uh, try to allay that problem.
0: Sure. I I have to think that being accurate about it as well helps that cause. Yeah, we hope so. That's the goal. I I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, right, I mean, I think that right. people are more interested in the actual science. I mean, I, you know, we do have some challenges because there are times that TJ, when when TJ and I are working on the book, he'll say to me, well, what would Jesse do at this point? And then I tell him, well, she would look at the microscopic slides and he'd say,
2: that's boring. That's
1: exactly. Can she get out behind her desk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I have to come up with something that she could do that's a little bit more exciting than she sat at the microscope for an hour and looked at
2: some slides. <laughs> but Judy does, does not let me right. get away with with any shortcuts. She really doesn't. Yeah. The the science is is real.
1: We we try to be accurate. And yeah. and we were just at the American Academy of Forensic Science meeting uh, just last week yes. getting more ideas and picking up uh, concepts and learning science. Both of us, see, the TJs there as well. Uh, between the engineering division and the jurisprudence division, we're constantly learning to try to make better stories and also better. My, you know, I have to do it for continuing medical education
2: and richer stories, yeah. going right. going outside of the the narrow focus that Dr. Melanick has as an expert in forensic pathology, and as as you were saying before, trying to open it up to other areas of expertise within forensics in in the course of Jesse's right. investigation that's what judy does too yeah right
1: oh i frequently it's not unusual mm-hmm. that when uh, attorneys whether it's da's defense attorneys or even civil attorneys come to me to consult on a case i i'll give them my opinion but then i'll say you know what you really need a police procedures expert too or i think you need um an expert okay. in engineering for this particular case for whatever reason depending on what the um, right. details of the case are
0: so there's no there's no ego about it it's you know whoever has the best expertise. Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you you know what you don't know when you're an expert. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and you, and you can't have an ego because if you do you're, you're they're going to break you apart on the stand. I mean, you're going to get cross-examined and um and potentially your opinions will get thrown out if you're overstating your expertise or uh, speaking outside of the realm of your expertise. A judge can just limit your testimony and then you can't say it.
0: Did you feel like going from working stiff to, to first cut did you feel like you grew or progressed as as writers? Did, did you learn something from the first book that then applied to writing the second?
2: Well, I'll tell you one, one thing that an experience that I did have that I'd heard other writers of, of fiction books have said happened to them and had not happened to me while we were writing Working Stiff, which was I'd be sitting at the keyboard mm-hmm. exploring a scene, writing dialogue, and all of a sudden I'd be saying, whoa, 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 where are we going with this, Jesse? What, what do you mean? Whoa, 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 where the characters took over and they started doing their own thing and I was just kind of channeling them through my fingertips, which You can't do with nonfiction. Yeah, right, yeah. Because
1: because when he wrote Dialogue in Working Stiff and I went back and read it, I was like, he was, I mean, in many, TJ was relying on my notes, my journal, when he was writing Working Stiff. And uh, sometimes my journal was not very detailed. I would say, oh, I spoke to the police about this case and I found out ABC. So he would turn that into a scene where there's dialogue and I would have to rein him in and say, first of all, cops don't talk that way. <laughs> and second of all, that's you can't write mm-hmm. that. That's not what happened. Let me reconstruct the conversation from my memory. And we would do it that way. There was no such restriction for accuracy in, uh, you know, hewing to what actually happened in first cut. But at the same time, I did have a little bit of veto power uh, on TJ's dialogue to make sure that it was uh, forensically accurate and consistent with what. Uh, a police officer
2: would generally say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also a, a big part of writing, both working stiff and first cut, but especially first cut, is editing, is cutting, That's right. is getting to mm-hmm. the the meat of what you're trying to advance and, and keeping it pushing forward. And, and I learned that from uh, a screenwriter named John Briley, who I worked for for some years, who was a, a really accomplished, wonderful storyteller. And I learned cutting from from Jack because I would see him just relentlessly cut things out of a screenplay if they needed to go. And he was not uh he was not shy about doing it. And I I learned to kill my darlings that way. You know, the, the things that you just can't you mm. think you can't stand to lose in a book. Well, you you've got to lose them. And that's a big part of of the process of of writing a novel.
1: You lose them when they don't further the sure. plot or yeah. when they distract from the main essence of a character.
0: I've noticed you you've been doing uh, a lot of book signings at different bookstores, and I know at the American Academy of Forensic Science, meaning you did a, a signing there there too as well.
1: Yeah, they have a, that, ca- right? They have a mechanism where you can uh, uh, have a book event for the benefit of the organization. So they purchase the books and they make the profit. Um, but you can talk about it. Usually it's uh, slated for uh, books that are directly linked to the forensic sciences, though they've had other uh, novelists there. Kathy Reichs has done book events there before. Patricia Cornwell has. I think Anne Rice did when, when she was having okay. her Vampire series. So they, oh, they've wow. had other uh, novelists at the American Academy meeting before.
2: We're also fortunate as San Franciscans to be in the epicenter of independent bookstores in the United States. Yeah, some great ones here. Yeah. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting an independent bookstore in San Francisco. (laughs) And we love to go from one to the other if they carry our book. We are very happy to sign their stock. And we love to do signing events at our independent bookstores. And uh, we're also really looking forward to, with this book, to doing book clubs. Because when we do yeah, book club, we'll, we'll be able to to unleash all the spoilers. Yeah, you know, so right which,
1: now we have to be careful. Right now, now we can't. Yeah, yeah, because potentially your listeners haven't read the book, and we don't want to ruin it for them. But with a right. book club, they've already read the book. Yeah. <laughs> or they're, they're at least they're supposed to have read the book.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. The um, the hospital where I work is affiliated with a medical college, and they have a uh, – they've kind of just started a book club. Fine. I might have to suggest this to somebody. There. Maybe they yes, can. you do. Yeah, if okay. if you
1: do, we we might be able to Skype in. Just let us know.
0: Well, oh, that'd be wonderful because they've had uh, a couple of speakers uh, come in in the past, and it's been. It, I went to one, and it, it was it was very interesting. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. I'll have to I'll have to suggest that to them.
2: Well, especially as you know, as, as the writer, it's not like you're an actor. You're on stage, and you can gauge what your audience's reaction is and and how. Um, how good or bad a job you're doing as an artist, as a writer, you put it out there and it's out there and you don't you don't know whether your readers enjoy it or not in real time, what they got from it. So that's why we, we enjoy uh, talking to our, meeting our, our readers.
1: Talking or to or that what they sometimes do is they DM us through social media. I mean, we've had friends who have texted us when they've gotten to certain points in the book where they're excited about something. So that's that's always fun.
0: Sure. I can see that that would be very, uh, very rewarding.
2: That that includes honest critiques of the book too, where people will say, I didn't like this about the book. And then I can jump right up and say, you're absolutely right. And let me tell you how hard I worked (laughs) to get it to that point. But you're right. You picked up on a flaw there and let's discuss that. We we like to do that too. Mm -hmm.
0: Sure. I can see that. Okay. This might be a good place to wrap up. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that, that you would like to say about, about the book or about, the process of writing the book.
1: Um, the only thing that we didn't particularly touch on or to mention is the way we collaborate with one another. That's a question that we often get asked: Is how okay. do you uh, write together without killing each other? Right, <laughs> we,
2: we are we are a married couple, and mm-hmm. we we are we are we are spouses who work together, who write about murders without actually committing any. Which yes. some other spouses are, are a little surprised that can do that. But,
1: but the answer is sure. that we started working together uh, when we were still in college. We've known each other since we were 18 years old. In fact, we were working together uh, collaboratively all through college. We did theater together. TJ directed and I produced a whole bunch of shows uh, when uh, we were undergraduates. And then we collaborated on our children. <laughs> That's true.
2: Yes, parenting for children is definitely, you definitely have to learn how to work together right. and how which roles each of you has. Yeah. And that, that's what, sure. that's the secret to our success as a married couple working together is we have no overlapping skill set. Yeah. Judy has the stories and a great imagination. And I'm one of those writers who loves to sit alone in a room and wrestle with words all day. Yeah. And so we tend to keep our tasks really separate.
1: And we tag teams. So for example, if the kids have a homework assignment they need help with, if it's science or math, it goes to me. If it's English or writing <laughs> or history, it goes to TJ. <laughs> and they know this. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and we do the same with our writing, and then we also really enjoy the the places where we do overlap, and we do get to work together to to hash out what is happening next in the story. It's a lot of fun. Sure, playing please, with our yeah. imaginary friends is what Judy calls it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I like that. That's thank you both very much for coming on the show. This has been, I, I'm I'm honored to have you on. This was uh, one of those sort of bucket list uh, interviews that I wanted to do, and and I'm glad we could we could make this happen. So thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you. This is this is a really excellent interview. Those are really insightful questions that you have, mm-hmm. and and we're we're both very happy that you enjoyed both our books. And I'm sure that you will enjoy Crosscut when it comes out too.
1: Yeah, and I encourage any of the listeners to feel free to follow us um, on Twitter. I'm at, at Dr. Judy Malinak. TJ is at uh, TJ Mitchell WS, and then we're also on Facebook at Doctor Working Stiff.
0: Okay. Yeah, and I will add. Uh, all those links in the show notes, I'll have links to both of the books, a couple of the YouTube interviews that, I, that I've that i seen of the two of you, uh, so that'll, that'll all be there in the show notes. Thanks Great. so much. Great. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Huge, huge thank you to Dr. Judy Melnick and TJ Mitchell. Of course, the title of the new book is First Cut. If you haven't read it already, go and get it. It's really good. And if you haven't read their first book, Working Stiff, go, go and read that as well. I'll have links to both books in the show notes. I'll also have links to their social media, as Dr. Melanick mentioned. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the Podbean app. And if you like this episode, make sure you leave a rating and review. I'd really appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter, at People of Path, or on my website, peopleofpathology.podbean.com. If you'd like to send me an email, there's a link on the website to do that. I am a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.